Hello and welcome to Money Talks from Slate Money. This is a really special one. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, but this is actually all three of us. Me, Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and Slate and various other places. Hello. We are all going to talk to James Choi. James, you are a professor at Yale. What do you profess? <laughs> I profess finance. And uh, when people ask me, what do you study? I say that I study dumb things people do with their money. You wrote a fantastic paper where you tried to work out what it is that personal finance books are saying and then compared it to what the economic orthodoxy says. There's a bunch of stuff that the personal finance orthodoxy might have got wrong. We're going to find out all about it coming up in Slate Money. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm super excited about this show because while we very, very occasionally give financial advice, not too often, I don't think we've ever given financial advice advice. And James, this is your job. You have spent more time reading financial advice than any other human being I've ever come across. You are now an expert on financial advice. And my first question is, like, just how painful was that? It was okay. I mean, these books are written to sell. So that means that they are written to be somewhat easy to get through, to be entertaining to a certain degree. And, you know, I didn't read every single page. I certainly glanced at every single page of these 50 uh, books. I, <laughs> You're like, this one has words on it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, I, I kind of pre-specified ahead of time which topics I wanted to cover in the survey paper that I was writing. Right. And so if I skimmed the page and I saw there's nothing here about anything that I wanted to talk about in my paper, then, you know, skip over pretty quickly. And then after having read roughly 8,000 of these books, you can tell me what the real number is. 50 rounds up to 8,000, sure. Yeah, 50 rounds up to 8,000. <laughs> Would you say they're broadly the same, or would you say they are all over the shot? Well, clearly there are outliers, and they're spread around the meat for sure. But it's kind of remarkable how few original ideas there are out there in this space. Which is which is kind of also reassuring, right? Yeah, maybe it's reassuring, or it's, this is a quick way to make a buck, maybe, that you just regurgitate the stuff that was written early in the 20th century. But you do see some of the same themes appear over and over again. And then you did something really, really interesting, which was you took all of that. You didn't really compare them to each other so much as what you did is you compared them all to economic orthodoxy. And what was the broad conclusion you came to? Like, if if you ran that sort of consensus mean around which they're all gathering past a normal orthodox economist, how close or how far away would they be? I would say on the investing end, you end up in a similar place, but for different reasons. And there are things that differ along the margins, but I think it probably doesn't make a whole lot of difference at the end. 
for an individual. Uh, and then on the savings end, you do see some pretty significant deviations. I think mostly due to how these popular authors conceive of human nature and what is our ability to stick to our financial plans. And maybe we need to alter the way that we live and the way that we build habits so that we can get to where we want to be financially. Whereas economists will typically assume that if you decide this is the right thing to do, you're just going to do it. And so there's no real concession to weaknesses and willpower or or, uh, motivation or that sort of thing. What was the most surprising finding for you in terms of the disparity between what's popular consensus and what academic consensus is? I think the biggest disparity that would have an impact on people's welfare is this idea that in popular books, they say that you should be pretty consistently saving the same percentage of your income over time. Whereas economists would say, actually, you want to spend a similar level of dollars over time. So this notion of consumption smoothing versus savings rate smoothing. So uh, the personal finance authors will say, no matter what's happening in your life, no matter how old you are, 10 to 15% of your income should be just your baseline saving level. Whereas economists would say, well, because the fifth slice of pizza is never as satisfying as the fourth slice of pizza, which is never as satisfying as the third slice of pizza, you kind of want to have a consistent moderate level of consumption over time. That's how you can get the most pleasure out of life. And that means that when you're in your 20s and your income is probably pretty low by your lifetime standards, well, that's probably not a great time to be saving a whole lot. And it's really when you're in your 40s and 50s in your peak earnings years where you should become a super savior saver, and, and uh, really live quite modestly relative to your income to make up for the fact that in your 20s and 30s, you didn't save all that much. I, I really, really love this idea. And it seems so intuitive to me that, yeah, you want a consumption smooth and that even negative savings rates in, in your 20s, as in like, you know, possibly going deeper into debt or not paying down debt could be perfectly rational. And under, underlying all of that, is a really profound and important truth that I kind of feel, reading between the lines of your paper, almost never appears in personal finance books. And that's the truth that our income goes up, you know, between our 20s to our 30s to our 40s to our 50s. Almost everyone ends up making more money when they get older. How often does that appear in these books? And if it's as rare as it seems, why do you think it's so rare? You know, I think that counting on your income going up over time, it's, it's a pretty good bet, but it's not true for everybody. And so I think that a lot of these popular authors would say that uh, that's kind of a risky way to live, to count on these chickens hatching uh, that may not hatch. Yeah, but I mean, so is investing in stocks, and they say you should do that. I, I am an economist. I agree with you on this front. <laughs> I, I think that kind of taking into account your career trajectory, your likely income trajectory, is a, a really good idea in terms of planning out your personal finances. Now, one theme that does come out uh, in a lot of these books is this notion that the most valuable thing that you can buy with money is freedom to walk away from any situation. And so if you have not saved that much in your 20s in anticipation of having a a big payday in your 40s and 50s, 
And let's say that you decide that this career isn't for you and you want to do something totally different, something that is less well paid. The authors would say, well, you're trapped, you're a slave because you have been banking on this paycheck. Now you have to kind of continue on this path to get that big paycheck and you can't live the life that you want to in accordance with your values and your preferences and so on. So I think that would be uh, probably the, the, the most powerful counter that some of these authors would give, that you are giving up freedom by counting on this higher paycheck going forward, rather than having saved up something so you can walk away. I thought it was also powerful, and you mentioned in your paper, one of the arguments for you know saving consistently over time was it's a habit and um, this idea that like if you don't develop the habit even in your 20s, you're not going to all of a sudden become more thrifty in your 30s and 40s. I sort of found that a little bit compelling, though I think it's just easier to save money when you make more money. So probably it's it's okay. <laughs> and you can figure out how to save once all the money is coming your way. Um, but I still think like this idea that you need to develop a habit is it's a powerful one and like speaks to the way these personal finance authors take into account human psychology more than the economists do. Yeah, I, I found that a really fascinating concept. And I think there's actually no empirical evidence that savings is a habit and a virtue that you build up over time through the practice of it. Right. But introspecting, yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty compelling. And, and, and if that is true, that indeed, if the first time in your life you try to save a significant amount is when you're 38, maybe it's super hard versus you've just always been living below your means from the time uh, you get out of school onwards. So I think that would be a fascinating thing to explore to see, is it true or not? I, I just don't know whether it is true. Yeah. Yeah. You could see you get in the habit of spending all the money you make and then you keep making more money and you keep spending more money and like you never really have the opportunity to to save, live below your means. The hedonic treadmill is is real, right? So uh, economists would call that a spending habit or a consumption habit. We have this very strong introspective intuition that we have this hedonic treadmill, that you just can't go backwards in lifestyle. Fascinatingly, it is very hard to find evidence of that hedonic treadmill in economic data. Huh. So economists have looked. Uh, it's surprisingly elusive. So one of the great things about your paper is that you write it, you know, after what have we had now, 50, 60 years of behavioral economics, like a lot of the psychological behavioral stuff has now been empirically investigated by economists. It's not like the, the, the popular personal finance authors have some kind of insight into the way that people really behave in sort of as humans as opposed to these idealized automatons that, that you find in neoclassical economics, right? Because we now have studied real humans and there's still a big difference there. I think that some of the things that, uh, or a lot of the things that behavioral economics and behavioral finance have focused on in terms of the biases and, and weaknesses that are in human psychology are things that are easy to study. <laughs> uh, and so, for example, this idea that if you haven't saved your entire life and you start trying to do that in your, in your late 30s, is that really, really hard? That's not an easy thing to study in the laboratory. Uh, it, it's not an easy thing to study in just observational economic data that's out there. And so this is a huge question uh, for all of us, really. How should we be managing our financial lives over the course of our life cycle? 
And, you know, I, I think that we don't have a handle as behavioral economists on this very big question. So that's kind of, you know, w- one aspect of it. And then there's another aspect of where the field has kind of evolved over the decades, which is you had this kind of status quo of the rational economic man. You know, economics had assumed that everybody is totally rational, totally self-controlled. And so it was a, a huge project for behavioral economists to fight against that, to show the, the gaps in the armor. And so a lot of behavioral economics over the years was, ha ha ha, look at how you're stupid. Uh, I'm going to tell you uh, exactly how you're making a mistake. And uh, isn't that really funny? And doesn't that prove that you're not rational? Now, that was great. Uh, that was, you know, I was part of that movement as well. But now, uh, if you kind of progress to the next step, which is how do you help people manage their finances better? How do you help people make better economic decisions? I think the field is just a lot less developed because so much energy was devoted to showing that people are, in fact, kind of silly and stupid in a lot of situations. And there was not as much focus on, you know, what if we're in charge? And what if now we need to help people manage their lives? What will we do in response? Can you say what a good example of, of ha ha ha, people are stupid? Oh, like, you know, there are all sorts of great experiments that uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky did back in the 70s and early 80s, where they would ask you questions in different ways, framing it as a loss versus a gain. They're exactly the same choice situation, but just depending on how you frame the status quo, people would make radically different decisions. That would be kind of one example. There, there are hundreds of these examples. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. One of the things I've seen looking at the personal finance landscape is that there's a revealed preference on the part of consumers who consume this content, especially the ones who consume it mostly through broadcast media, for scolding. Like the most successful people like Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman tend to be highly judgmental and to scold the people who are calling in asking for advice and be like, no, no, you've got to get your act together. You're doing it completely wrong. I can't believe you've been making these decisions. These were terrible decisions you need to, you know, and, and that kind of very aggressive mode seems to be popular um, as a sort of popular media consumption thing, if nothing else. And I guess that in, in your sort of the way you look at things would be one of those things that's empirically incredibly hard to judge, right? Is like, does scolding people have a more salutary effect than sort of encouraging them? Well, in principle, that would be a relatively easy study to do. You randomly assign people to either get scolded <laughs> or to get encouraged, and then you see what happens to the finances afterwards. Uh, in terms of, you know, why is there an appetite for this? I mean, I think that there's some entertainment value in seeing someone else get scolded. 
Uh, I think there's also a, a real close analogy between diet and exercise and getting your personal finances in order. Kind of have to exert some self-control. There's some pain. You know, there's a big audience for shows like uh, The Biggest Loser, uh, where there is a lot of scolding. I understand. I've, I've actually never watched the show, but it, you know, tough love, drill sergeant kind of stuff. It maybe it works for some people, and then some people just need a, a gentle hand. Oh, you can do it. Uh, don't worry. Uh, everything's going to be okay. And you see both of that in the personal finance space. Kind of the the, the Susie Ormans, the Dave Ramseys that say, you know. <laughs> Uh, you just screwed everything up and, and you, you're such an idiot and I'm going to help you shape up your life. And then, you know, gentler approaches. Is it possible that people who seek out personal finance advice just over-index on masochism and they just enjoy the process of being <laughs> told that they're doing something wrong? It sort of confirms their sense that they can fix whatever it is? It could be. Again, I think that it's like these people who do juice cleanses or, or seven-day fasts uh, to change their body composition. Wow, like that seems pretty unpleasant to me, but there is a big appetite for that sort of thing. And I think that it's the promise that if you do something radical for a short period of time, your life can be transformed, which is pretty appealing. Now, the danger is that these kinds of behaviors might not be sustainable over the long run. And so the question is, by doing something like a money cleanse or a money fast for a week or a month, does that kickstart you into a new way of living? Or is it like all of these yo-yo diets that people do, which are not actually good for you and don't help you lose weight over the long run? Is 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 the money first, money cleanse, is that a thing that's recommended in these books or in some of them? Dave Ramsey uh, recommends it. I think he says, run like a gazelle and do some pretty radical things for a few weeks or a few months to get yourself out of the big hole that you've dug for yourself, sell everything, deliver pizzas. Uh, he, he recommends some pretty tough love for uh, your finances. And one of the fascinating things about Dave Ramsey is that he dresses it all up in a, an explicitly Christian bow. He's like, this is the Christian way of managing your personal finances. One thing personal finance and uh, diet advice have in common is they're selling a myth that individuals have absolute control over whether they're fat or thin, over whether they're rich or poor. Like if you could only master your finances, if you can only master your body, you can achieve this wonderful thing, which is like financial freedom. But they, by doing that, they sort of allied reality, which is that if you have more money, you can better manage your finances. And if you have the right genetics, you can better manage your physical appearance. You know, it's this very like American individualistic kind of strain of thought where it's like, if you just master yourself, if you just control yourself, you can figure it all out. And the people that are poor, they can't control themselves and they can't control their spending. When in reality, I would think you could do a study to find that, okay, the people who are poorly managing their finances, quote unquote, are just people that don't have enough money. And if you have more money, it's easier to manage your finances. I mean, I think there are elements of truth to both in that surely it is true that if you have more money, uh, things are easier for you financially. But you can you can find two different people that both make $50,000 a year. One person uh, has their financial life in order. The other person's a financial mess. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a significant element of how healthy your finances are that is not purely determined by your income level or your circumstances, but really it is 
uh, I'm just going to spend less. I'm not going to borrow on my credit cards and, and revolve that debt from month to month. I'm just going to live at a somewhat lower level for now. So I'm not in this high interest debt situation. And then over time, I end up being in better financial shape than you know my my twin who decides they're going to max out their credit cards and, and go to the Bahamas and, and you know do all these other things that aren't sustainable given their current income level. I just wonder how common that is. I, I think intuitively, if you take a group of people who are all making $50,000 a year, you know, they will fall along a relatively broad spectrum of spending, right? You know, I think we can definitely disagree about the degree to which it makes sense to scold the people who are spending more and praise the people who are spending less, right? I don't think those decisions are necessarily that they have that kind of moral valence. But I do think that it, it makes sense to believe that, you know, people are different. People are different, but if you make $50,000 a year, like I just don't think there's that much variation in how you're spending your money. Most of it's probably going to housing. Oh, no, no, that that's absolutely not true. There's a lot of variance in savings rates and a lot of, yeah, a lot of variance in the way people manage their money. And, and so there's a study uh, that was done about 20 years ago where uh, these researchers had access to Social Security Administration's lifetime earnings records. So they just saw every year of your working life, how much money did you make? And then they looked at how much money you had accumulated at retirement. Mm -hmm. And there was just a broad dispersion controlling for the total number of dollars you earned over the course of your life. And almost all of that dispersion was actually not explained by the rates of return you got in your investments. Almost all of it was, was, uh, was determined by how much you had saved along the way. So actually, that's one thing that uh, is not commonly recognized, which is the amount that you save is a lot more important for determining where you end up than how you invest. So then the personal finance guys are right because they harp on savings most of all versus the economists. If this is a game, Emily, where the, where you win by ending the game with the most money, then they're right. I'm just not sure that's the game that everyone is playing. I mean, I think the, the personal finance authors, uh, the popular authors would say, kind of save a consistent amount over your life. So you're saving you know, a lot more in your 20s than the economists would say that you should. But then in your 40s, you're saving a lot less than the economists say you should. And so you could end up in a very similar place at retirement in terms of wealth accumulation, but it just, you know, how much are you saving and spending along the way to get to that common destination? So they're both saying save a lot of money, but it's like do it in different ways. Yeah, the timing. Do you think part of this is because the people who are writing personal finance books generally view their readers as being more risk averse than an economist would? Because a lot of the examples that you you give where people are not making purely economical, rational decisions, but they may have some fear of loss or you know emergency situations, that sort of thing. So the personal, the popular personal finance authors tend to push people towards more aggressive investing. Uh, so kind of allocating more to stocks than they ordinarily would is a, is a common theme. But it's also true that they tend not to recommend stock allocations that are as aggressive as economists would recommend. And one thing that, uh, that's actually been kind of a mystery for a long time is the fact that stocks have been this fantastic deal historically. 
and nobody's quite sure why. It's an anomalously good deal. And so a, a lot of economic theories would say you should just have a ton of stocks in your portfolio. And empirically speaking, a lot of people have zero stocks in the portfolio. And economists say this makes no sense that people are so conservative in their investments. And you know, a, a lot of these basic economic models would say that you should kind of be 100% stocks for much of your working life. I have two questions about this risk aversion thing. The first is about exactly this, which is stocks. And this is the one part of your paper where I was like, I, I needed to really challenge my own priors on this one. I've always thought of stocks as this is a really good investment over the long term, but they can be really volatile over the short term. So if you're going to need money for, like, say, a house down payment in a year's time or in two years' time, that money probably should not be in stocks. But if you're saving for retirement, then it absolutely should be in stocks. And in your paper, you're like, yeah, no, not really. If you look at the economic literature, there's there's not so much saying that like short that short term savings or shorter term savings should be in cash. Yeah. So your initial intuition is the unanimous consensus of the popular authors. And it just that if you look at the data, there's not a lot to back up this notion that over the long run, stocks are less risky. But this also depends upon how you def define risk. So it is absolutely true that if you compare stocks to bonds and you increase the investing horizon, the probability that the stock investment will outperform the bonds does increase with the investment horizon. That's true. On the other hand, uh, the worst case scenario for the stock investment gets worse and worse and worse as the investment horizon increases. And so you have two different forces that are kind of uh, working against each other. And there are some very famous theorems that were proven back in the 1960s by two Nobel laureates independently. Paul Samuelson and Bob Merton independently proved that at least under certain conditions, your investment allocation should not change uh, with your investment horizon. You should allocate exactly the same percentage of your portfolio to stocks, whether your investment horizon is a year, 10 years, 50 years. And this is you know, kind of counterintuitive. So uh, my like very basic understanding is that as you approach retirement age, you don't want all your money in stock because the stock market goes down and then you lose a bunch of money right as you hit retirement and there's like nothing you can do about it. You're screwed forever. Yeah. So <laughs> the policy prescription that you have in mind, uh, economists would absolutely be on board with okay. for a different reason than is commonly understood. Okay. Okay. So the theorem that I just described is for a situation where you just have a pot of money Mm -hmm. You have no kind of wage income coming into you. You're just trying to manage this pot of money over time and to finance your spending from this single pot of money. In that case, under some conditions, your asset allocation should not change depending on your investment horizon. Because as your investment horizon increases, the worst case scenario gets worse and worse and worse, even though the probability that you'll outperform the bond also gets better and better and better. So these two things exactly offset each other. Now, in terms of retirement and how close you are to retirement, you absolutely do want to become more conservative as you approach retirement, but that's because there is an important economic asset that is changing as you get closer and closer to retirement, and that's your human capital. In other words, the future wages that you are going to earn, that just mechanically is getting smaller and smaller and smaller as you have fewer years left to work. 
It turns out that your wage income is a pretty safe source of economic resources. So even though you might feel like, oh, you know, there, there's some fluctuation in how much I earn each year from my job, relative to the stock market, it's like pretty safe. And so if you are very close to retirement, you have relatively little of this relatively safe asset in your overall portfolio. And that means that you need to kind of scale back the riskiness of your financial portfolio to kind of offset the fact that your safe human capital is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I love that. So it's like I'm thinking of, instead of thinking of my retirement savings as just the money in my 401k or my IRA, it's like it's also in me. Exactly. <laughs> and my asset allocation is partly in me and my labor plus what I have saved. And as I get older, the asset allocation devoted to my labor is like basically shrinking. And, and so I have to offset it with less risk in the in the stock portfolio. Exactly. You also point out, James, that one of the blind spots in a huge proportion of these books is social security income, that they yes. have this kind of feeling that you're going to have to just live on your retirement savings. You're not going to be making, you know, getting thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year from social security. Yeah. I mean, if you uh, poll Americans, there's a Gallup poll that was run uh, not too long ago asking Americans, basically, do you believe that you're going to get a single dime in social security benefits? And a large percentage of Americans say, no, I'm not going to get a dime. Even Americans in like their late 50s, early 60s, a bunch of them say, I'm not going to get a dime, which is just ridiculous. Uh, we're not going to be taking away social security benefits from people who are 59 years old today. And you, you can kind of look at uh, examples like Greece. So in 2008, 2009, 2010, Greece pretty much underwent like the worst economic depression you can think of. It was like as bad or as, you know, even worse than the Great Depression. Did they get rid of their social security altogether? No. They cut it some, but it, it was substantially protected for its older citizens. And so this notion that America is going to eliminate social security, just zero it out, uh, I think that just not in the cards. A shocking number of people think that. Like regular people I talk to all the time. That's just a vibes, vibes-based thing. So, you know, do, do they trust the government to provide them with resources in times of need? Yeah, I mean, and I've been asking this question for many years, right? And I moved to the United States in 1997. And back then, if you asked people, like, is Social Security still going to be around in 2023? Everyone would be like, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah, and there was a really interesting study regarding the Social Security Trust Fund, which is uh, projected to hit zero, I think, sometime in around 2030. And so there's a real kind of reasoning error where people think just because the trust fund has hit zero, the benefits are going to get cut to zero. That's actually not true. It just means that there's not enough in the trust fund, plus the taxes that are coming in to fund Social Security to fund the full promised benefits. But we can still fund like 80% of the benefits that are I haven't promised. And of course, Congress is almost certainly going to act to shore up the finances of Social Security. Right. I mean, if you just look at your paycheck, you still you we're still paying a lot of money into Social Security every every month. So like that has to go out somewhere. This is absolutely this is absolutely what the study was about. So the study first asks people, you know, what do you think is going to happen to Social Security if this trust fund hits zero? A whole bunch of them say, oh, Social Security is going to disappear. Then uh, you ask them. Do you think that Social Security taxes will disappear 
when the trust fund hits zero. And nobody thinks that that's going to happen. <laughs> then the follow-up question is, what do you think we're going to do with the money that is collected by the Social Security tax? And then some people say, aha, uh, that money's still going to come in. So we're still going to be paying out some Social Security benefits uh, with that money that is being collected through the FICA tax. That's wild. And I love it. One last question. It seems obvious to those of us who have taken you know, an introductory economics course, which by the way, I never have, that if your savings are making a negligible amount of interest and you have debts, which are costing a high amount of interest, then you should use your savings to pay down your debts. And yet, you know, you know, as you just said, it's not a good idea to be house rich and cash poor. So my my final question is this question of, is it ever rational? Is it ever a good idea to continue to save cash and build up savings when you have outstanding debt and especially non-mortgage outstanding debt? And is there a difference there between the personal finance folks and the economists? I'd say in general, it's a bad idea to be accumulating significant savings while you have high interest debt like credit card debt. But there are special circumstances that might call for you to actually accumulate some assets. So first of all, there are a whole bunch of things that you need to pay for that you can't easily pay for with a credit card. So for example, your rent. For the most part, you have to pay for that in cash. And so if you don't have cash lying around because you spent down all of your cash to retire as much of your debt as you could, you could kind of be in a tough spot at the end of the month. So I do think that you need, for transactional purposes, a bit of a cash buffer uh, to just handle the everyday expenses of life. That's kind of exception number one. Exception number two is if your employer offers a 401k and they match that money that you contribute to the 401k, then it could be a good idea to actually contribute to your 401k rather than taking that money and paying down your debt because a typical match structure in a 401k would be something like we're going to match 50 cents on the dollar uh, that you contribute up to, say, 6% of your income. Well, that's a 50% instant risk-free return on your contribution versus the credit card interest rate is like 20%. And so the math would say that yeah, you kind of want to get that 50% return rather, you know, even though it's costing you 20% per year on the credit card. So there are some isolated situations where you might want to do some of that saving, even though you have that debt outstanding. But in general, math would say, yeah, like you're earning 4% uh, on your savings and your credit card is charging you 20%, why would you be investing at a 4% return rather than paying down debt that's costing you 20%? Now, interestingly, the personal finance authors sometimes have a different perspective. Uh, one perspective they have is that it's too demoralizing to do nothing but pay down debt without accumulating assets. So if you have a bunch of debt, maybe all you're going to do for three years is pay down debt, pay down debt, pay down debt without building a nest egg. And they say, that's so demoralizing. You're just going to fall off the wagon and you're going to neither accumulate savings nor pay down your debt. And they also say, they don't say pay off your highest interest debt first. They say like, get a, get a win, like pay off something you can actually pay off in full rather than... Oh, sure. So you're, you're talking about the debt snowball famously associated with Dave Ramsey. So just for those uh, listeners that aren't familiar with this, the debt snowball method says, uh, instead of focusing on paying off your highest interest rate debt, 
you should focus on paying off your smallest balance debt because that way you're going to be able to zero out a particular debt account. And that's going to feel so good that it's going to motivate you to continue on your debt repayment path. I buy that. <laughs> Economists would say, no, the math says you should try to retire your highest interest rate debt because that is the most costly debt that you have. The term that the, the popular authors use for this is the debt avalanche strategy. And I think it's an open question which one of these methods actually works better in practice. Because, of course, if you just lose motivation, then the debt avalanche strategy is not going to work for you. So maybe even though the debt snowball is going to cause you to not kind of retire debt in the most cost-effective manner, it's it's a diet that you can stick with. So the best diet is the diet that you can stick with that is reasonable. And so maybe that's what the debt snowball is. I don't know of any convincing scientific evidence that the debt snowball is more motivating, but at least some people say that it worked for them. What was your least favorite popular personal finance book? Uh, I mean, I think that uh, Robert Kiyosaki uh, recommends some deeply irresponsible, dangerous strategies. Take on a whole bunch of debt, buy real estate, flip it. That's great if the real estate market goes up a lot. <laughs> yeah, that seems that seems very sensible. Yeah, but uh, you know, it exposes you to a lot of downside risk. What is the best, like, what are your top two personal finance advice nuggets that you can, that you can give us and the readers? How much should you save? How much, I mean, tell us the wisdom you must have learned. My, my uh, generic advice is you know, everyone's situation is so different that it's hard to give generic advice. But I think the one piece of generic advice that yes. applies to everybody is have a plan, make a plan. Oh. And you'd be surprised how few Americans have tried to make a financial plan for themselves, tried to figure out ballpark, how much do I think I need to spend in retirement or how much would I like to spend in retirement? And so what I recommend uh, for everybody is just make a very, very simple spreadsheet. Every row is like kind of one year of your life from now until retirement. Mm -hmm. Okay, now you put in each row, how much have I saved already? How much do I think I will save in that year? And just kind of do that accumulation from now until retirement. And then ask yourself, hey, am I ending up somewhere in the ballpark of reasonable? And if it's not even in the ballpark of reasonable, then you know you have a problem. And you got to change something. But just that simple arithmetic, I think, is very enlightening. Elizabeth, do you have a plan? Uh, I do, but it, it gets modified quite often. So. <laughs> well, I mean, absolutely, it should be modified continuously as your life circumstances change. But at least you can see if everything went according to plan, if everything happened as I think it's going to happen, would I end up somewhere uh, that I'm happy with? And if, if the answer is no, even if everything goes right, you're not going to end up someone reasonable. Like you got to make some adjustments today. James Choi, this has been absolutely amazing. And I'm so happy that you came on this show. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been brilliant. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks to Jared Downing, Shana Roth, Jessamine Molly, and Ben Richmond for producing. And we will be back on Saturday with a regular slate money. <laughs> <laughs>